Hi, and welcome back to the Village Trader Podcast. I'm your host, Njabal Ntibandi. This podcast is aimed to help new and experienced traders navigate the markets and learn from other traders. This is episode number 52. In this week's episode, I'm coming to live from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange with uh, portfolio managers at Ren Swiss, Gary Poison, and Fred Gavinda. How are you doing, gents? Good, and you? Yeah, we're good. Uh, very good. Um, thank you very much for your time and inviting me to JC. It's been a while since I last came here. <laughs> welcome, welcome to our construction site. <laughs> yeah, obviously, for the listeners, you guys don't realize, but... Uh, it's yeah. I think the JSC has taken advantage of uh, the downtime with COVID and the lockdowns and everyone working from home, so they've decided to renovate the whole floor. <laughs> so we were climbing upstairs and over concrete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just there's no like old school physical floor trading. <laughs> True. Um, can you guys take me through your individual stories of how you got interested into the markets and how the journey started? Um, it was only books. I was similarly off. We both started as engineers. And then dropped out when we found that engineering was actually quite hard work. <laughs> <laughs> and finance seemed a little bit easier. Uh, so I, I did about two years of engineering, electronic engineering at Tal University. Uh, then I moved on from that and I said, you know, a BCom was probably going to be more fun. Uh, so I did a BCom, uh, started off with a generalized BCom, went to economics. In the second to third year, I decided that was my, you know, the, the thing I liked the most. Uh, did my, was honors there as well. Uh, did some traveling thereafter, once I got my honors degree. Uh, came back to South Africa and then I did some teaching for a few years uh, before I sort of advert for a, a, you know, uh, a post uh, at a company just, uh, that eventually became running private clients. Um, and went there and uh, you know, fell in love with the market. Uh, the great thing about the stock market is that it kind of works together with what I like uh, as an individual, which is basically knowing stuff, useless stuff that you're never going to basically use anywhere else. You know, if you if you have a job as a, a baker or a construction worker or something, you're never going to care about what's happening in China and why Xi Jinping's history matters in terms of how China is going to develop. But as the stock, someone in the stock market, that matters. You know, you can learn about world history that makes difference to you. You can learn about why products work, about why batteries are interesting, or why, you know, for instance, palladium and platinum have different uses in different kind of internal combustion engines, and that has an impact on your thing. It's the one area, I think, of, you know, professional life. Uh, a lawyer doesn't need to know everything. A doctor doesn't need to know everything. But a stockbroker gets an advantage from every bit of information they have, virtually. And I think I like that about the stock market. And then, uh, I guess I joined on the trading side initially, uh, after a few years. Uh, you find that uh, there's very few old traders. Uh, <laughs> they, they tend to not stick around for very long. Uh, it's a young guy's business, so I decided to move more into the wealth management investment side. Uh, we, le- we left the company both me and Gary were at, at the time, but I private clients around the same time. Um, I went and started some other stuff for a couple of years around the medical aid space before uh, joining Gary here for the wealth side. Oh, interesting story. Interesting story. And how about you, Gary? It's a good question. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go back as far as Viv. <laughs> yeah, so I also studied engineering, but it got out. I also studied almost everything. So I, I then went to BCom, decided I loved law. <laughs> that was the first year I thought, oh, com law, this is just so interesting. And then I decided I'm going to switch it for a third year into BCom law, but I took all these weird electives as well. Um, and I kind of completed my BCom. Uh, then I went traveling, same as Viv, um, for a little bit. 
I uh, went all, yeah, I went to South America for a year. Went to and then went to work in London, and kind of I think that's where I really got the the, the interest in finance because like when you're working in you know when you're living in London and, and this was like London in 2000 and I was there from about 2005 to 2008. So it was really in, it was in that hype just before we had the global financial crisis where it was like the investment bankers were like they were the pinnacle of society and they were you know like it was just like it was everything you wanted to aspire to in London and, and I was basically like this first generation immigrant <laughs> landed on their shores that they were like you know it, it was it's you know, it's a very stratified society and I, I thought this is something that looks incredibly interesting. I mean, I remember walking around Canary Wharf and looking at these huge buildings and thinking, I want to work in here. I want to do what these guys do. And I knew nothing. I mean, I remember going for job interviews at that stage. I mean, I had like kind of a, a little bit of a legal background. I'd done economics. Um, and and I kind of remember going and chatting to guys, and I knew nothing about markets, <laughs> but I tried to get jobs there. And it was literally I would be sitting there with my my undergraduate BCom and be sitting with like three PhD students, or at least three PhD candidates for the same job, and they would look at you and go like, "Why are you even applying, buddy?" <laughs> so so then I, that's how I kind of like the better. Then I then I kind of like I, I continued studying the whole way through while I was traveling. So I actually got a, a humanities degree on top of my BCom, which was like classical culture in English just for fun because I found it interesting a bit like for, I just I'm interested in, in I, I mean I remember starting in like physics and chemistry I mean oh it's so interesting and then but being interested in all sorts of things so so like Viv says it's, it's kind of the idea that this profession then allows you to have such a broad interest um, that you can really just go and pick whatever you feel like investigating investigated and it can give you an edge in, in whatever you're doing uh, in London, then I, I kind of finished up uh, my my like I did honors in economics there as well. So I finished up my honors in economics. Um, I actually worked. I worked at that stage. I was working for a company. It was actually a property company that was on the Lehman Brothers. Um, it was on the floor above Lehman Brothers in Canary Wharf. I remember we used to sneak down to the Lehman Brothers canteen, and then the whole obviously financial crisis happened, and we were, we were kind of <laughs> seeing the guys in boxes in the elevator, and I was going, oh, "What's going on here?" Um, then I came back to South Africa. To 2009, it was kind of then it was like, you know, I want to join finance. So people were like, Gary, do you know what's going on in the markets? It's like, we're not hiring. So I actually, I picked up a job as a, as a financial editor for about, uh, it was a couple of months. Uh, it was just, I think it was about almost a year. Um, and then I kind of went to my publisher at the time, and, and we obviously had all the contacts with all the stockbrokers in the environment. And I got to, it was so great because I could, you know, I was interviewing the guys to, to do uh, written articles. And I managed to just say, listen, I'm never going to be a great writer. <laughs> Please, can you just speak to all of these guys and, and get me in at one of the, the, the stockbroking firms? Um, and I actually, Viv, Viv, at that stage, uh, we used to come and he was one of our writers. <laughs> and I, um, and I, I kind of got, got involved that way. And eventually they, they kind of phoned around and said, yeah, cool, there's an opening there. And I, mean, I remember it was very fortunate because I got to go and sit on a lot of the stockbroking desks just to like kind of learn how things worked. Um, then, yeah, as I said, we joined a company that eventually, you know, was bought out by Winoni Limited, and they kind of took, you know, that. I worked for a company called Absolute Alpha, which was a small asset manager. That was bought by Winoni Limited. They bought Cohesa Online and a whole lot of other stockbrokers and lumped us all together on this desk. Uh, we used to work down on Catherine Street and said, build a business. <laughs> and, and at that stage, it was, it was really cool because it was there was a huge degree of flexibility, but you had this kind of like corporate backing as well. So, um, yeah, we spent five years there building like what I thought was a really cool business. Um, and then after kind of almost like 
you know, soft <laughs> testing everything and understanding, you know, the, the, you know, having come from really, you know, I mean, we had clients at that stage, but it was really almost like it was like a, almost a, it was brownfields, but it was almost greenfields kind of project. Um, I kind of thought, well, I can do this again, but I can do it for myself. And that's where we kind of began Rand Swiss. Uh, so that was in 2015. Um, and I think on that day, so I, I remember, I think it was 2013, we, we won the People's Choice Award, which was, uh, which was a financial mail award. And I was always like, that was always became my goal. <laughs> Never had anything to do weirdly with making money. <laughs> it was always about, like, I wanted to... I wanted us to, to, to become the best in the market. That was that was really the idea. Um, I'm South African through and through. I have only a South African passport, but my wife is Swiss. So you asked uh, before yeah. the show, where did, where did the name Rand Swiss come from? So I'm the Rand, she's the Swiss. Oh. <laughs> that was that was the, yeah. That was the, how we put the two things together. And also, like the whole I think vision at that stage was to really like to create this this business that um, just linked overseas markets and, and local markets. And and we we had obviously a a lot of South African clients, we'd already kind of felt the demand for, for offshore trading. And, and at that stage, this was this was before it was so popular. Um, and we already had the right partners in place and you know, we kind of knew the right people to get in, in touch with. Um, and I thought, you know, we're just not taking advantage of this. And this is a real niche opportunity at that stage. It used to be niche. Now everyone's <laughs> doing it. And I thought this is a really interesting space to, to try and go and, like, really get, like, top talent to together to, to, to build a process where South African clients can trade internationally. They can invest internationally. We can put together interesting products and structures for them that, that, that really, you know, allow South Africans to externalize wealth. But to, yeah, to, to, to just... Give, give them something a little bit different from what the rest of the market had. Um, so, so initially, uh, in 2015, we launched, you know, because of our background, it was, it was very much stockbroking. We used to sit on Bonani's membership license. I mean, it was amazing to trade as a, as a JSC trader at that stage. Um, because the cost profile was wonderful. <laughs> and it was great, like I said, to have the corporate backing. But we, we started very much with what we knew, which was private client stock. Well, it was kind of private client stockbroking. So it was chatting to guys about markets. You know, you investigate things, but you're just giving them the this, like, holistic, high-touch service that if they phone and say, is MTN better than Vodacom? Oh, yeah, so let me go and find out about if MTN's better than Vodacom. This is where we see the levels. And giving people that high-touch service. Now, you know, that unfortunately always becomes unsustainable because as you get more more clients, you just cannot have that kind of deep relationship with, with every single client, um, which is what, what it was like in the beginning. And then pretty quickly, we, we launched the asset management business as well, which we, we did in 2016. Um, because we, And it wasn't to really put out to clients, but also that we could start building track record as quickly as possible. So we got our cat, what's called CAT2 licensing, so we could do discretionary management as well as um, intermediary management. Um, and yeah, and then uh, Viv came. Yeah, by then Viv uh, finished. Yeah, so Viv 2017, Viv came in to start doing wealth, um, and really, like he started with the wealth, but then got really, like I mean, like you see, Viv, Viv is the kind of guy who loves exploring interesting things, and and that's where he kind of started exploring structured products as well, which was kind of a new business for us at that stage, and um, we kind of it started really gaining traction around that uh, that that uh, way. So Viv doing the wealth stuff, but also kind of like handling the structured product side of the business um, and that's where we started trying to compete in the awards because I, I remember when I phoned the financial mail the first time around Rand Swiss and said what 
you're not, you're not really having Rancis represented. This is crazy. You know? <laughs> Hi, your awards mean nothing without a company like Rancis. And I'm like, well, you better let them into the awards. And, and then they were like, obviously, there's criteria around, you know, like size of client base and all of that. But fortunately, we had a big enough client base that we could, we could compete. Um, yeah, 2017, I think we came third because that was the first year that we competed. We came third. Uh, 2018, we then came second. And I mean, remember, this is like the the premier kind of. Um, it awards, not awards, but it's a premier vetting um, methodology of, of the whole industry. So, I mean, it's all the big banks are represented, all the big brokers are represented. Standard Bank and PSG seem to win it. <laughs> like, PSG went through a big stage of winning it, and then Standard Bank won it year after year after year. And, I mean, I don't think a small broker had ever won it. And, and, you know, it was always the big institutional teams that were winning. And I was like, we're going to win this thing. And in 2019, we won. I was very happy. It was like, kind of like a big, like, hey, we've done it. Um, we picked up all sorts of awards and since we're currently the best online online trading platform um, we've got top tax free savings yeah. account uh, we've also won the people's choice award and uh, I think top advice broker as well in previous years so um, yeah we kind of like I'm really proud of it because it, it, you know for me like I said it was never really about the money it was it was more about creating something really unique and really excellent for clients um, and it, of course we want to grow we want more clients but at the same time it's always for us been about very controlled growth because it's been about like not wanting to lose that personal service and that ability to to really like keep your clients incredibly happy and maintain the quality above everything else so it's always been about quality over quantity um, and now it's really about putting the right systems in place and just kind of continuing to grow we've, we've built the team i think we doubled the team size last year um and and you know we obviously have just gone through COVID. <laughs> like i said it's it's yeah, i mean I kind of think about like what's happened to South Africa since 2015, and I think like this is probably the hardest time to start a business. But uh, it's yeah, it's I mean it's been an amazing journey for for, for what what it's been. Um, it's been incredibly fun. It's been horribly stressful. <laughs> it's been a lot of like sleepless nights, but uh, and, and working weekends. But it's been it's been incredible, and I wouldn't swap it for anything. So that's kind of what we do. And I mean we've now split the private client book. You know we now have a private client book and an online trading books so and we have to do that about two years ago just because you know a private client book is now sits you know unfortunately and I say unfortunately because I would love I love chatting to clients it's like one of my favorite things is, is you know Viv loves research Viv's the academic he's a researcher he loves to, to kind of like dig into the, the, the meat of like global financial problems like I, I enjoy that as well but I love chatting to clients it's like it's one of my favorite things is like working with people and, and being able to kind of like build these relationships with people and you know it's, it's always unfortunate that you know unfortunately the bigger clients pay your bills <laughs> as the ones you build the relationships with and I say it's unfortunate because our private private broken book now only takes minimum deposits of 5 million but um, but you, we, we didn't want to lose the ability to work with everyone and, and that's why we kind of have the online book which is you know we try and work it a lot more actively than a than a you know, I suppose than a typical, like one of our typical competitors, uh, because we want even our online guys that access to a desk. They've got Van and Krista and the guys to, to chat to. Um, they just unfortunately don't have that private service <laughs> anymore. But it's um, yeah, that's kind of where the business is at, and and that's kind of yeah, our history. I think that answered your question. Yeah. You know? so. um, interesting that uh, both of you guys uh, were kind of intrigued by you know the nature of the markets around being able to monetize the interest and not just in a small way but in a really really big way do you still remember your first trade uh, when you started Rentswiss? 
And my first train. Knowledge and reasons behind that. Train. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually can't. I'll, I'll come back. Come back to me. Do you remember uh, your do you remember, first first, do you remember your first trade you ever did? You never remember the first one. You remember the losers. The first trade, remember, you, 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 it, it, the first trade you did were basically instructions. So you, the way you start a trade normally, for, as in a, in a business, is that you start taking instructions for people. So somebody calls you, you you don't even advise them. You know what I mean? You you see, okay, here's a report that somebody else did that may help you with this. Here's some you know ideas that that our economist or whoever our our brain in the company says, uh, you know, whatever they do. So you give that to the client, and over time you get experience, you get more knowledge, and then you basically start you know getting your licensing and so on done, and then you can start telling the client, you know, I don't think that's a good buy. I think this is a better buy. I don't think. That, you know, that relationship goes on. Uh, and, and over time, you start having more and more input into the client's investment decision. And obviously, at the peak, you basically, the client gives you money and says, I'll come back and talk to you in a year, and I hope you've done good stuff with my money, you know what I mean? So the, the thing is that if, you, if the first trade you had done had been, you know, buy this or buy that, you probably have get a memory of it. But the first trade you did was one of like 100 trades in the day. Let's ask the quotes. No, I want to buy this or that and uh, what's, what's happening with this. You say, yes, sir. Da, da, da. You can do that. Uh, yes, sir. There's a report on that that can maybe help you decide or not to do it or not. And then you just do the trade. And then you do another one, another one. You're not doing one trade and basically like a prop trade and waiting for a week for it to happen. You, you start basically doing the desk. You're doing probably 100, 200 trades in that day, you know, placing them for clients. So that's why I don't think we remember those. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the, the first trade I ever placed. Right. Yeah, I meant like the first trade that you yourself came up with the methodology. Yeah. So you wouldn't let you basically go from, oh, I'm taking client orders to, I am trading for you now. It happens that I'm taking client orders, I'm chatting in the investment committee meeting, and then I have an idea that goes through the smarter people, the more experienced people. And they will say, ah, oh, that's a dumb idea. That's a good idea. Let's work on it. Let's figure out what stop loss is, what your, your, your stuff is, yeah? Yeah, so it's, me, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great area. And let me, let me try and give you almost like the, you know, it's one of the things, especially the, the, the new guys on the desk, uh, you know, they kind of, I think when we started as well, it was it was a great area. And, it, you know, I remember doing initial trades. I, I remember, weirdly, the trades that, other people, other people that, that were on our desk that I remember one of our dealers' trades where he was so nervous to place his first trade, I had to literally take his finger and push, <laughs> and push the button to make it. And I was like, look, you traded. You know? I'll never forget that trade. I think, I think he was buying a 1,000 Anglos, and he was so nervous to push the button, and I was just like, done. <laughs> and I was like, no, you've done it. I was like, I think it was going to be, yeah, I remember saying, it's a bonding experience. Come on. <laughs> but... but um, yeah, just to, just to give me an idea as well. Like on our on our in a, in our in our company at the moment, um, we've had, we've you know we I think we came from a, like because we were building a business that was much more fluid at at Vinani where you know people were, we were like people were, you could move between roles quite easily. But we we've been found anyway that in this company like we've had to define our roles very very carefully, and we we now have very clear like it's basically junior analyst, senior analyst. Um, 
portfolio, so junior analyst, senior analyst, portfolio manager, um, basically a private client trader, um, head of research, and then chief investment officer. That's that's kind of like different roles. And in order to be a private client broker, like you would have to have sat as a junior analyst. And as Vos says, to sit as a junior analyst, what does a junior analyst do? You're literally doing legwork for a senior analyst. They, they're saying, I've got a client that needs to understand what's happening on the stock. Go there and research everything. I want to know everything about this. This is what I'm concerned about. You know, what is the impact of the looting on ShopRite, for example? Get hold of investor relations at ShopRite. I want to know exactly what's going on here, 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 here. And the portfolio manager sending that instruction down to a junior analyst that's just doing legwork. When that guy comes back and says, this, 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 the portfolio manager then pulls reports and that doesn't make any sense. This, this, this. Go and ask them this, 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 this. So, so they get all this experience in, in basically, you know, they haven't actually pulled the trigger on a trade, but they've, they've got the, the, the legwork and they start to already understand the methodology behind it. The other thing that a junior analyst has to do, you know, is we, we consider if a senior, so, so, so Viv being kind of like what I think of a senior analyst, like he can go in the media, he can go and chat on podcasts, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Whereas a junior analyst, we would never let into the media. Um, you know, but what they have to do is they, you know, we have an, a regular investment committee meeting. They've got to come and pitch their ideas as if it's, they were doing it on a CNBC or, a, or or one of the public channels. They have to pitch those ideas to the the group, uh, and then we'll tear them apart. That's a terrible idea. Why why have you done that? That trend line? What are you talking about? That thing goes through the trend line four times. That's rubbish. Like that's not how you do. Yeah, you know, so so that they they get almost this uh, test environment to learn in before they actually would ever deal with with real client money or the or when they would ever have to place a trade for themselves. Now, a lot of the guys, that get, and I think it's different because like we both came from kind of more academic backgrounds coming into coming into the market, um, or, or more like not academic, but more theoretical backgrounds. Um, whereas a lot of guys that start out, and, and I know just from from guys that have sat on the desk in the past, they come from trading their own money. They they they've already, you know. Whereas for me, I was like out of varsity. So it's like I didn't have any money to trade. So it's yeah, it was very very different, I suppose. Yeah. Also, you understand that uh, a lot of the stuff that happens in the market, your degree means very little. But it means a lot in terms of like, gives you a little foundation, but. Actually, understanding uh, how the market yeah. works, the actual like, like you know, the actual way it works, as well as how you know a successful trader operates. Uh, it's like you can't learn soccer from a textbook. You can't learn to do boxing from a textbook. <laughs> you have to actually get in there and do it. And that's why so much of what we do has these these time things, you know, uh, for them to get experience plus your your qualification in order to do that. And uh, so, you know. More years you spend the market, more time yes, you have to absorb these things, and often there are things that you just don't understand because it's like you know when you first learned to walk, you fell down all the time. Now you walk without even thinking. If you had to think about how you walked, you'd probably fall off again. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that's also what happens in the stock market as well. You you get a feel for things, and it becomes like innate to you, and you like you do your ten thousand hours plus to get to the point where you can actually start talking to people. In yeah. any given role, you probably want to put two, three years in the role to, to understand and, how things work. And, and just yeah. to highlight that as well, and again, like bringing juniors onto the desk and, and having dealt with guys, it's one of the biggest, not, not complaints, but it's one of the biggest uh, struggles because we do also obviously regular one-on-one meetings with the guys just, just to kind of really 
kind of hold them hand through it because I mean working with people's money is that important. But um, when when you when one of the biggest complaints is like I've done BCom honors in risk management, <laughs> I've done investment management, and they and there's this anger like the institutions didn't prepare me for this, <laughs> and you're like because you can basically take that degree, roll it up, and throw it away because it makes absolutely no difference when you get down to the mechanics of actually doing this. And I mean, I, like I, I was actually using it with, with the example of someone else the other day. Like it's, it's almost like playing poker. You can read a textbook about, I mean, review soccer and boxing, but you can read a textbook about playing poker. You can learn all the rules to the game. You can even go and play with matches, but it means nothing. You might know how to play poker, yeah, yeah, yeah. but until you've got real money invested, until you've got real money behind those cards, like, you don't know anything about poker. You don't know what you're going to be like under pressure. You don't know what it's going to be like when suddenly... You know, markets are falling, and, and and you suddenly have to react, and there's you re- there's real losses happening behind it. And I remember, I mean, we used to have a, a prop trading desk. I mean, well, how many guys were on that? Probably like thirty, like at one point, maybe twenty. Yeah, quite a few. But I mean, there were like about five. So with a success, like super successful prop guys. But I mean, I remember guys used to go like prop being proprietary trading, where where the guys trade literally their own accounts or the house funds them to trade and make money. And I mean, I remember the one guy we always used to go and stand outside, and people would be like, "How's your day going?" Because I mean, a lot of the stuff that we did was was intraday trading as well. And the guy was like, "Oh, I'm up twenty years," and everyone was like, "But guy, you pay, trading paper? Like he was he was pra- he was practicing." Everyone was like, "Who is this idiot <laughs> practicing?" Like. <laughs> put real money in and come back otherwise you can't talk here because like the thing is even if it was a small amount of money it has to be real to to experience it and to you're not walking you're ther- theoretically walking you yeah, know yeah. So, yeah. so so for me it was always so like like I cannot like highlight as much as like how important you know whether you're trading or investing it's to, to get really involved in, because it takes time and experience yeah, yeah. time matters as well I mean yeah. like, these guys here that, that, were, that were like you know doing the prop guys, the, the, the ones that did it very well. We had a young guy, and he was early 20s, and he was trading between uh, Christmas and New Year's, that period of time when markets were quiet, and you'd think, why is this guy here? Normally the traders aren't on that time. And he, and he asked, asked him, well, you know, I know you have money, because I, that's, you know, I know how successful he was in terms of prop trading. Uh, he's quite young, in his early 20s. If I was in the early 20s, that kind of money, I'd be, you know, <laughs> like in a pizza or something, you know what I mean? And he said, I couldn't think of anything more fun to do than come to the office and trade. <laughs> and, and, and that was the way you have to do it. If you have a passion for something, it, it, it actually, you know, allows you to, like, learn you know, uh, more easily. Yeah. What did John used to say? He used to say that the stock market's like, it's a computer game, it's the best computer game in the world with the worst, worst graphics. And I agree with what you said uh, around, like, you know, trading is almost like meditation. I can t- tell you how it, how it is and, and, and all of that, but you really have to experience it yourself. And, you know, mm. that, that it's, it's, it's why I think demo accounts are the most useful, useless things. <laughs> so, um, great, yeah, but I think that's right. Like, a demo account is absolutely great for learning the mechanics of how, how does, you know, how does a market depth work? You know, you know how, how do you actually execute a share? How do you fill in an order ticket? You know, what's a market order versus a limit order versus a, a stop limit order? And how does that work? 
absolutely do all of that on the demo account. But when you're sitting there and you understand all the buttons to push to make it, but you have to start making a call of should I be buying, should I be selling, am I entering, am I exiting? Um, like you say, totally useless. <laughs> you, you, you'll make money on your demo account every day for a year, and and then you'll go into the live market, and it just changes. That there's a little spark that's different. So. Um, you, you, you mentioned a guy that um, was so terrified of, of press, uh, um, clicking the button and pressing trade, um, and that speaks to a lot about the psychology that, that brings to it because a thousand and especially you know, there's all sorts of horror stories where I think it's when Amplats was at a thousand and yeah. the guy you know he, 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 he was meant to sell 10 Amplats at a thousand he got his volume and price backwards because like Fips says we're executing a lot of trades a day and suddenly he was selling a thousand Amplats at 10 rand <laughs> I think he put the market into, into auction it was his fault for putting it into circuit breakers and then and then you you've made a mistake and you've lost a lot of money and it's it's got real financial ramifications. Yeah, so like you, I think this, this wasn't like him putting a trade for himself. It was basically a trade for a client. Yeah, and then he was basically based, making sure that every single step along the way was correct. And like Gary said, it, it's, it's different nowadays because there's now there's more sanity controls in the system. Now, I think yeah, that's it. You, you've got to remember when we started trading, there was, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 yeah you didn't have the same sort of um, limitations. Yeah, yeah, one limitations, but also yes. the technology just wasn't as supportive as it is these days. I mean, I look on our online trading system. I mean, I, we were going through. I was going actually through the, this morning with one of the junior guys. You know how margin works. How you know, like basically how to set up and think about risk on a two percent rule. And the different ways that you can, are you putting 2% on margin? Are you putting 2% at stop loss? You know, and kind of going through just the basic calculations with them. And, and I was saying, like, what's so incredible is on our platforms these days, you literally fill in an order ticket, you put your stop loss and your take profit, you put your volume, and it tells you, you're going to lose this much, you're going to make this much. It's all done for you. When we started trading, <laughs> literally, you were doing all that stuff in your head, and you were just buying lines of stock. It was like, and I mean, you know, I, I'm not that old that I was doing a telephone. <laughs> but I mean, I, I was just on the cusp of that. And I mean, when we were doing big orders, and I mean, when we were doing orders with market makers and that kind of stuff, most of the orders were actually going through on the phone. They weren't going through on, a, on an electronic system. So I wasn't quite sitting in the JC waving my, my, my pieces of paper around. But. Yeah, I mean, the systems back then were just, they, they were meant for power, they weren't meant for safety. Mm. So they gave you a lot of, of ability to do a lot of stuff very quickly. But the problem was that they didn't have the sense. So you could like do a thing like that. So you could put, for instance, a stock that costs a thousand dollars and you want to sell ten. You basically sell a, a ten. Uh, of course, you do the reverse. Basically, you sell a thousand for ten. Okay, so, so and, and it will just keep selling and all the way down. <laughs> and the system wouldn't say, okay, there's a whatever. Next thing you know, the market just goes down. You wonder what happened. And you guys, you had done that. <laughs> and, and that was the danger back then. But nowadays, it's it's, it's much more. It's hand holding it from the system. The system says, oh, you try to do that, so it'll give you errors, it'll give you like whatever that stops you. And also, from a retail point of view, that they don't let you do things that will make you lose more money than you have. Mm. Whereas at the institutional point of view, they assume you have infinite money and you can do whatever you want to do with your institution, and therefore you can do these things. And so, I mean, we used to do like massive trades. I remember the biggest. I was personally involved in was a trade for something like a quarter of a billion rounds worth of sassels for a single trade. And the system back then, even though it was large, had to basically do them in, in lots of, I think, like 10 million or something like that. Yeah. And there were like you know, 25 different things that went through. I can't remember exactly how many they were, but there were massive little things going through. Buying and selling, you know, within about two days, like a quarter of a billion buying, a quarter of a billion selling, you know. And, uh, 
the system will let you do that because, of course, it assumes you're a financial institution, therefore you must know what you're doing. And so that's what it does at that trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a little different from how you trade for the first time for yourself and how an institutional trader trades for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And how, 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 how did that impact you psychologically, having to you know, move quarter of a billion? Well, well, I mean, that was very easy because that was an instruction. So the client was, you know, said, okay, we want to do, I want to do this particular thing. Uh, it was a, I mean, a guy that does a quarter of a billion round trade, so put a B, not an M. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that client is, is one of the most sophisticated clients. He's not going to be around doing that kind of stuff unless he's uh, pretty knowledgeable about what, he, what he's doing. Uh, if somebody came in here and they just inherited some money or won the lottery and said they want to do that, we'd probably sit down and explain to them exactly what's involved and so on. But this client is very easy because, you know, it's a case of they wanted to do it, they know what exactly they wanted, and we just executed for them. You know what I mean? Uh, psychologically, it's more difficult when you start actually advising clients and then watching the market. Yeah, yeah I think that's, you know, that, that's a totally different thing. Uh, I mean, we go on about kind of the advice versus execution. And it's, it's such an important distinction that we make with the clients as well. So, so I mean, on an online book, you know, like Viv says, it's, it's very much like the client is making the decision and, and you're literally providing executions. You know, what is the stockbroker essentially doing? It's, it's providing an execution system uh, behind this thing to actually get you onto whatever market you want. And, and that's important. How many markets can we get you onto? Like, can, you know, you want to buy MTN shares? we can do that that's easy that's a JSE account it sits in a BDA account and we go and buy and sell shares but I mean and then you get all the complex stuff like that we do these days around DMATs and REMATs and you know like <laughs> lost share transactions it's, uh, it's, it's not the fun trading side at all it's just a heavy administration <laughs> side but then can you get them into other markets like can you go and trade in Vietnam can you go and trade in uh, Hong Kong like what can you do how much can you plug in for the trader that's what the stockbroker is doing but it's all execution you're not making the calls and then like Viv says, then we move to kind of our private broking clients. There, you're helping the client make the call by saying, like, you know, is MTN better than Vodacom? Is, you know, should we be going into Sassel at this level? Where is Sassel? What is Oilmarks doing? And then, it, you know, it comes down to, under, like, advice around that underlying, which we don't consider financial advice in, in terms of that. For me, the most difficult advice is, is what the wealth managers do. When you're sitting with someone and you're saying, this is who you are as a person. This is what you need in life. And the client's saying, I want high risk. And you're going, you cannot have. <laughs> you need to be here. I think that that level of uh, relationship with a client and that level of uh, of advice, where you're actually making decisions based on, on a client's pension money and something that's that's really it's going to change that client's life permanently if, if you mess up. I mean, there's an incredible burden of responsibility on, on that. So, like I said, from an execution point of view, it's not psychologically taxing. You know, even from a from a market point of view, yes, you want to get your call right, and yes, you, you know, it's, it's very difficult when you've made a call for a client. You said, I really Really believe this, and and you're wrong. But I mean, often clients will forgive on on the underlying stuff because people understand that markets anything can happen. I mean, you might have had a brilliant call to go into to Mr. Price, and everything was right on Mr. Price. I mean. The, the technicals were saying the right things, the fundamentals are there, the earnings report was going to come out, you kind of had worked out everything, and then suddenly looting breaks out and all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like people, people understand that as long as your, your fundamental basis for the call is correct, and I remember we've got two of the, honestly, the best analysts around Platinum in the market work at Maybank, in my opinion, and I remember them, you know, years ago, uh, you probably remember Lodman, um, 
and the whole call around Lonman that they made, you know, Lonman was under enormous pressure at that stage. It was post Maracana, and it was it was in a situation where I mean, I think their workforce on on a on a, on a Friday, like we're sitting, <laughs> I think they only had about twenty five percent of their workforce coming in. It was the whole thing was a mess, and everyone had a sell on Lonman, and, and these guys came out. We've got to buy on Lonman. We've got a target price, and Lonman was at about ten bucks back then. They had a target price of like thirty five bucks. But I've got to read this report. Got hold of them. What's going on here? And they they hold argument was that the price of Lonman as a whole, you, you know, you could literally buy the entire company and you couldn't rebuild Lonman's smelter for the price that you could get the whole company for. Um, the problem was that it was in the public eye and all this, and they said that the right thing to do is someone has to buy this out, and they said it's probably going to be a Chinese consortium that buys this out. Second, maybe Sabanya will come and buy it. That's the only other people who can think, but we think Chinese consortium. They never got their $32 price target. The Chinese consortium never materialized and bought it. But Sabania did. But it was the, the philosophy behind the call that was so brilliant. Their call was wrong, but their reasoning was right. And and for that reason, like, I mean, I still rate them as some of the best platinum analysts in the, in the market. Um, now, a client will forgive you for that. But now you take it one level further where you're dealing with someone's real pension and their wealth, and you're suddenly sitting with this client and saying, okay, you've got two young kids. <laughs> These kids are going to school. This is what's happening. And now you've got to make a Call, like, are we going into offshore markets? What are you, what is your tactical asset allocation? Which fund managers are we going to back? Uh, you know, how are we going to manage this this money? Like, what kind of estate planning are we going to put in place? What happens if you die? How are we going to look after your kids? I mean, that kind of level of responsibility compared to executing a, a, a quarter of a billion dollar trade. It's another level for me. It's another level. I, like I have enormous respect for those financial planners that are out there that, uh, that make those kind of calls every day, and they probably look at the traders and think you guys are doing quite a billion dollar trade. You're so stressed compared to what you guys do. It's easy business. Yeah, but also the problem is that there's too many guys in the market that make the excuse of, you know, everybody did make this mistake, so my mistake doesn't count. Uh-huh. And, and that is also an issue that I found because, you know, five years ago or what's like four years ago now that I joined the World Division here, uh, people were basically much more keen on, you know, South Africa's going to recover, the economy's going to do well, and we are going to basically have this market to this, that, and the other. And we all know what the South African market has done. I mean, we understand that life nice like up to recently, but I mean, over the last five years, it's been a disaster in terms of uh, people's, uh, you know, retirement annuities and others. And, you know, at that point in time, the good thing about us versus some of the other places out there is one, we don't have the backing of saying, oh, we are this huge institution, everybody made a mistake and therefore our mistake doesn't count. You know, we have much more of a close relationship with the clients and so there's no excuses when you come to that level. When you come to the financial planning level, there should be no excuses for failure. You know what I mean? Unless aliens come down. <laughs> you know, but there should be like, you know, a little balance out there. Number one. And number two is that we don't have any um, inbuilt uh, needs to support other parts of the businesses. I know if you look at Microsoft, Microsoft didn't get into the mobile phone business because they were afraid of cannibalizing their, uh, you know, other parts of their business. Um, we don't have that issue here. If something is good for the client, it's good for the client, and that's it. In some other places, you know, oh, it's better for the client to have all more offshore, but our funds aren't already offshore. So, you know, what do we do? We give them more to our funds than the clients. No true needs. I mean, obviously, that's not explicitly set out, but it's probably the kind of reasoning that happens behind the scenes. And I find that a lot of financial plans, like Gary says, uh, you know, they do, um, you know, obviously uh, have a lot of responsibility, but often they kind of psychologically put the responsibility onto their institution as opposed to focusing it on, you know, I'm responsible for this person's 
the finances and I should be supporting them in terms of what they need to be done. Uh, that's why I think some of the independent guys often have more responsibility than some of the guys that are managing things for, you know, like in-house guys for like you know, the bigger firms out there because the bigger firms is oh, we're following the, response, the guidance of our economists, we're following the guidance of our whatever. And the independent guy has to choose this, that or the other and say, okay, I'm following what's best for the client and I'm making a choice that this is probably going to be better than that. And I've got to explain, I've got to back it up. And even if something surprising happens, like for instance, you know, uh, the looting, you should be diversified enough that that should not affect you dramatically across mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. And I, you know, first I like what you, what, you, what you said about distinguishing about, you know, the bet and the result of, 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 of the bet, because, you know, a good bet can lose money all the time, especially in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, Sorry, the, the way that I explain it, so, so, so I don't know if it's going to work because I want to write it out, but it's like, <laughs> if you think about this from a, from a trading point of view, a portfolio manager point of view, like, you know, the market, you know, because the market is trying to, uh, <laughs> no, we don't get into that, but I mean, the market is a prediction of a prediction, yeah. almost, but, uh, but essentially, you're trying to predict the future whenever you do a trade. You're trying to say, based on these things, these things are going to happen, and not just that, based on these things, we think everyone else is going to think that, and that's essentially what you're doing with the market. But if you're really good at what you do, if you're, like you say, if the fundamental reasoning is right, if, if everything behind your setup is right, so you go, you get, let's say, one point. If you, if you then are lucky, you get another point and your result is two you're, you're super profitable and everything works out you can also have a situation where you're really good you get your one point but then you get really unlucky so you get plus zero so your result is still one it's not great it's not two but it's one then you can get the guys that have bad reasoning they don't understand what they're doing <laughs> and and they get naught but they get lucky so you get plus one so you're also sitting at one you know and and it's, it's sometimes very difficult i think for retail clients and for people and often like from a, certainly from a trading point of view from what i've experienced of retail traders is they might think they're a one but they're actually a north that's gotten lucky <laughs> you know? and, and that you've got to be very careful of that because it becomes almost like this this thing and then obviously the last one is you're a bad trader you get naught plus you get unlucky and then you're in a world of pain so so that's that's really what it is you need you know as much as there is a, you know unforeseen um, circumstances that can arise uh, having someone that is truly competent and, and knowing exactly what's happening behind the scenes it, it's the one you can't control your luck but you can control how good your research is how good your your trading methodology is that's something you can't control so that's what you must focus on yeah. um, do, 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 do you think that um, the lack of skin in the game for uh, um, managers or traders that trade company money uh, especially in, in heights of every bubble or every market collapse, like you know, the dot com bubble, the housing crisis. Um, it's, it's, it's because, from a psychological standpoint, um, as you mentioned, it's people that say that think that my mistake doesn't matter because everybody made a mistake or everybody made the same mistake, mine doesn't really matter. And um, you know, people that just betting money uh, that like, they don't know how much. How much like the impact of their bets, and you know, to 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 your point, um, they've been uh, bad analysts, just lucky, you know. If you, yeah. you know, in a bull market, everybody is a genius. Exactly, and I think. Look, I mean, here's the thing, and this is a fact that that's that's true. Like you know, historically, over like a, a, any given year, the, the stock market itself, the average market, basically outperforms more than two thirds of you know trusts. So two thirds of your trust you know, managers, their clients would be better had they just bought the stock market instead of buying, you know, their particular fund. And over a twenty-year period, that number basically goes from, you know, a third or so to basically five percent 
of uh, fund managers outperform the market over a, a long period of time. Now, the, the question is, is that mean that you should drive the stock market always? Not really, because again, you must understand for an individual person, your life is not a, a, an average, your life is your particular thing. Your needs at 55 are very different than your needs at 50, or 40, or 30. And at 70, they're different again. The amount of risk you can take on and so on. So just outperforming the market is not the only criteria you need to look at here. It's also a risk profile. But the problem that people have is that, including fund managers, including uh, you know, retail clients as well, is the fact that human beings are not designed to understand risk, really. You know, any human being can, just, can know one plus one equals two. Two is more than one. That, that logic is inbuilt to you, otherwise you'd be like messed around by every person at every shop. Oh, they give you one, they give you another one, I charge you for four. You know what I mean? <laughs> doesn't work like that. But you know that those things work. But what most people don't understand is how risk works. And risk is not about what you see after it happens, it's what you see before it happens. After something happens, there's no risk between the past. There's no risk in the past. <laughs> only risk in the future. Yeah. And people don't have that understanding. And so when it comes to the managers out there, to a certain extent, they kind of take off the risk that they have in their books and kind of put it, oh, what my past performance is, or fine, whatever it is. It's not looking forward to the future and saying, this is what we actually are risking. This is what this particular person's life is. This is what happens if this thing happens, what happens if that thing happens. And I find that, you know, uh, when it comes to like investing and whatever, the best approach to have in your, in your, in your, in your investment thing that may not give you the best return, but probably give you the best risk adjusted, uh, you know, towards investment is to have almost a barbell strategy, which we talk about a lot here. It's the fact that you need to have a certain amount of your money that make sure your rent is paid or your bond is paid and your kids have food to eat and are malnourished. You need to have a certain amount of money that you would go and play to get that yacht and the caviar. You know, most people have a nice little kind of, you know, thing between the two. You shouldn't have that. Caviar money is caviar money, bread and butter money is bread and butter money. By having that separation, that you can take the higher risk, and but you must make sure that the bread and butter money is like safe. And often when guys come to the bread and butter money, they like I said, when the market turns against you and the stock market hasn't performed for five to six years, and guys' estimates of what the retirement looks like is going to be underperforming, you are affecting bread and butter money. You're affecting the ability for you to live your life like you should be living. And I, you know, when it comes to retirement planning, especially in South Africa, it's, it's a bit serious. It's not as sexy as the trading stuff. You've got to understand that somewhere in the region of about 10 to 12% of people can retire. And these are people with pension plans, by the way, not people that are basically just, you know, hoping the government supports them. People with pension plans are able to retire with about two thirds of their money, their pre retirement income. The important thing to understand is that if you drop below about two thirds of your pre retirement income, okay, you get to a point at which you start to feel different in terms of how you live your lifestyle. If I cut your income from, say, 20,000 on a month to 15,000 on a month. You can live your life. You know, you, you can cut that things, but your life is the same. I cut from 20,000 to 7,000 on a month. You can't live the same life. You have a different lifestyle. <laughs> you can't even go out to the same friends. You can't even go to the same, eat the same food. You can't wear the same clothes. You may not, at 15,000, you can buy the same clothes less often. You can eat the same food. You know, just slightly often, the really high-end stuff. At 7,000, that's a totally different lifestyle. And the problem is that many people get into the end of their retirement. And they're finding that they're at the 7,000 level and not at the 50,000 level from 20,000. And that is the, the kind of tragedy of that, what's happened the last couple of years in our stock market. That's what the, the problem is. And many, like I said, large, like, you know, trust or whatever, are aiming, oh, market's done this, we've done that. We've beaten the market. Fine. Okay? 
Oh, stop mucking stuff like that. That doesn't help on the ground. <laughs> That's the argument. It does not help on the ground. You need to. When you come to... It's wonderful to be a relative manager. Yeah. Just to maybe bring back an answer question as well, maybe a different way. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> question, 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 well, yeah, yeah, question, question is basically like, you know, when you're dealing with big institutional monies, do you still feel like you've got the same skin in the game? Is that, that yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. of what you were looking for? Yeah. But I think, you know, you do get... Yeah, I, I tell you, when you, when you separate... And I think what we're also trying to highlight here is, is when you separate the person's money that you're managing from the person... Uh, and, and, and our whole financial system in South Africa is built to do that. You have the financial planner there who's passing the money to an asset manager behind the scenes. What you're doing is you're breaking that personal relationship, and in a way, you are removing the skin of the game. That, that fund manager, like I said, that's a relative manager. He's just saying, these guys are bringing in money. They, they're my clients, and, and all they want me to do is outperform as the financial planner, and the financial planner is the one that's really sitting at the coalface dealing with the emotions of the person that, that has now suddenly generated underperformance. Performance. Like, so, so I think I think it's a valid point to say that there's a, a huge break, uh, and I mean the solution to do that is, you know, we, we always talk about it as well. Like, there's no magic, you know, like <laughs> there's no real magic in, in making money in the markets as much as people wish there was. You, you know, it, it's really like the, the companies, the whole way a market is designed is, you know, it's to give you access to the for companies that are growing and for you to to, to participate in, in their growth. Um, you know, by adding all these layers of management. <laughs> all you're doing is essentially splitting that and taking yourself further and further away from the engine. I mean, if, if you know, <laughs> we use the listed market as an example. You go and buy a share, for example. Why do you buy a share? Because the share is a nice package that holds all the assets underneath it that are generating things. If we could scrape off even that and just go and actually have those tractors and those things, <laughs> you know, that's actually removing a whole other layer. But each layer adds its own level of protection. And I mean... You know, the problem the problem with scraping off the layer of the listing is you lose all the regulatory <laughs> protection and then you end up in, in, in very dodgy schemes and that kind of thing. So yes, you do want to get as close to the, the underlying asset as possible. You want to get as close to the person managing your money as, as, as physically possible. You know, removing those degrees of separation is important, but you, you've also, I suppose, got to realize what you're giving up each time uh, when, you do, when you're doing that. Yeah, I'm step from, from your trust point of view, okay, I'm going to your trust. When, the, when he looks at his, I've done a, had a good year and a bad year, he looks at, what have the other guys done? And I've done as well as the middle, I've been in the middle, I've done slightly better in the middle, I'm, I'm great at my job. Slightly better in the middle, but I've been negative, but I'm still better at my job, you know what I mean? And often when the financial uh, advisor looks at it and says, oh, how have I done? The interest I put you into was better than most of them. Mm. I've done a good job. But the guy that gets the money at the end of the day says, but I don't have enough money to retire. <laughs> but I did a good job. <laughs> yeah, it is um, one of the tragedies. You know, as, as, as portfolio managers, how do you approach risk uh, at a trade level? Um, and what are the... Um, if, if you have any worst uh, or painful or memorable trades that engraved you with, with that uh, um, method of thinking? I am actually uh, semi-proud of this... Uh, uh, not so very proud. <laughs> I, I'm wondering where this is going. <laughs> but, but I was in a trade at the height of London, a short London, and I, I basically stopped out of it uh, at a price that it never went back up to and fell every single time. I lost money in the trade, short of London, at like a ridiculous price, and it fell and fell and fell. Now, you may say to me, oh, Wolf, you was such a horrible trade, and I put you so dumb to do it. But here's the thing is that if you were, I was following a rule. My rule was you'd kept the, that limit and then it went above that limit. 
you basically cut. Okay, if you don't keep your your trades, you don't basically do the the wrong thing, right? You know, in inverted commas, uh, occasionally because you are keeping to your principles, you will eventually lose your money. If you don't keep to the principles that you have that, that highlight your trade or the, around your trade, you will eventually lose your money. Because yes, there's, there's obviously the long example where I could have kept it and I basically bought it back at a huge profit for a short, you know, at like almost nothing, like, you know, years later. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. But then there's guys out there that went short on Cooper, you know, they went short on, on Nasdaq, they went short on, you know, Tesla. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 and you must always understand that when you, when you, when you make a system and you have a rule that you, you're following, you follow it, you know, to the, to the thing. So I'm actually proud of the fact that I made this stupid decision in inverted commas to cut long because it went to that point and I said, okay, this is the point. I know it's on the price, I don't want it up, but my rule says don't go beyond that. So you cut that out and then you, get, you, you follow on. You do that on average over time, it will help you. It will basically make you a better trader. But you just say, oh, I know this is right. <laughs> I know this is right. I mean, it's not just, this just happened to like, you know, retail clients, Bill Ackman, I think, yeah. would, uh, what's it, uh, Herbalife, basically lost so much money in that trade because he knew the stuff was terrible and he kept shorting every single time it went up and lost billions. It's that, it's that Mark Twain quote. It's, well, it's, it's not what you don't know that'll get you. It's what you know for sure, but just ain't so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's why I say, when it comes to risk, you have a thing here, set out your rules, yeah. follow them. Now, and I think, yeah, so, so that's, that's from very much, I, I mean, I know the, the audience is, is, is more interested probably in the, in, the, in the active trading side of it, yeah. which is why I've been saying that story. But you know, when you're managing a portfolio and, and you're managing a, like a big, big portfolio and large amounts of money like this, you, you know, there, there's so many ways of thinking about risk as well. So there's, there's having a system in place that, that protects risk. But I mean, you've also got to think about the types of risk. And, and like I said, you know, the human mind, there, there's all sorts of mathematical models that you can go into to around risk and different ways of thinking about it. You can think of risk as volatility. You can think of risk as the credit risk or the catastrophic risk around a company just no longer existing. and All sorts of things that you can put in place to, to mitigate those risks as well. But there's risks around like human error as well that, that you have to have, have things in place to do. So I'm just thinking in terms of like kind of our managed portfolios that we have. So, uh, I mean, our methodology is, is very, very set out. So so one of the, the I'd like to offer on, on this point, the, the way that we manage, the way that we select stocks, there are certain criteria that have to be met for that stock to go in. And it's, it's, you know, in, in a way it can be a little bit too rigid and, and you think, oh, but that would be a great stock to put in. And like, I'm sure. And then you look at it and it performed really well and you're like, oh, we should have done it. But like you say, you can't worry about that kind of stuff because like you've got to stick to it. Because if, if it's not within a formal framework and a, form, a formal process of selecting your, your underlying securities, um, it's too hit and miss. It, it, it's, it's based on a gut feel, which is which is great and a lot of fun if you're just having a punt on a trading account. And I mean, I, I never begrudge a client for looking at, at something and saying, "Hey, I want to have a take a view on something." You know, I think the rand is too expensive. Let's go for a punt. That's totally different to, to managing to effectively managing your own money or to effectively managing someone else's money. So one is to have that methodology ironclad. Now we've got, like I said, I'm, I'm unfortunately not going to give you our secret sauce because that's what <laughs> I charge. That's, that's, that's what I charge clients for. So, so we've got a, like, like I said, we've got a very rigid and it's very quantitatively based methodology. We all, you know, we our track record on our fund is now over. over well, I say our fund, but our, our managed portfolio. Um, main managed portfolio is, is over five years now. We've outperformed four out of the last five years. Um, it's 
uh, yeah, I mean, we up over, yeah, I think we're up 112, I did just in the metrics now, I think we're up 112% in dollars over the period, uh, but it's deliberately designed with risk in, in mind. So, uh, and like Phil says, it's very easy to go one plus one equals two. You understand, it's very easy for a client to understand performance. It's very easy for me to say, oh, well, we, up, you know, we doubled your money in US dollars over, over the last um, thing. We've outperformed the S&P 500, MSCI World. we like almost four times better than South Africa in dollar terms. It's a great, it's been a great investment. Has it? You have, if I make that statement, you should say, I have no idea whether it's a great investment because I have no idea what risk you took to do that. Uh, and that's why we have to, we've got metrics there, so we look at volatility on our portfolio and there's wonderful kind of like systems that, that will spit out the answers and I can, I mean, I, I can't show you guys on a podcast, but if you look at it like in risk-weighted terms, if we compare to our benchmark, which is the MSCI world, we haven't just outperformed it significantly in terms of the, the underlying performance. In, in, in terms of volatility, we are far, far lower in volatility as well. So, you know, it's not just about the one side of the equation. It's about how much risk did we take to create that performance as well. And, you know, if I if I even marginally underperform, but I've got a much, much better risk metric and I've taken far less risk to do it, that's great. How do you lower risk? It's about correctly diversifying a portfolio as well. That generally, you know, they say diversify to protect, concentrate to create, you know. There's nothing wrong with taking, a, you know, a very concentrated bet if you're very sure of it, but you've got to understand that you are taking, high, you, you're increasing the units of risk that you're using to get that kind of performance. Same with gearing, same with leverage and trading. Now, by leveraging, you're, you're increasing your concentration dramatically. Um, so one is, is diversify. We, we kind of do all sorts of, like, I mean, like the basic, you know, kind of top level, we, we follow like a top-down and a bottom-up approach. So we first take a top-down approach. We do all the kind of, you know, in the investment committee meetings, we'll discuss the kind of macro environment that we're in. You know, should we be overweight China, underweight China? Is China after the collapse an opportunity? What is the macro stance? Where, which economies do we believe are going to do well? Then we try and focus on, in those economies. But then we go into the bottom-up stuff, use the quantitative models to really go and pick out really solid companies to, to put into the portfolio and then in terms of the human error that's why we run it through an investment committee you know while you know you have a single portfolio manager sitting on the account people go mad <laughs> people make mistakes like an individual like even you you know that that's managing your own trading account it's almost good to have someone that's just looking over your shoulder and assisting you like you know when you want to go and take that double down or five times five times exposure because you're just so sure have someone tap you on the shoulder and be like no that's why on a professional training is you have traders the traders are monitored in what they're doing to, to make sure that they're working within their parameters to, to make sure that there's there's more than one set of eyes there's, there's more than one brain trying to work out what is what is right or what is wrong um, ultimately you've got to have one person that makes the decision but you need to have a very solid team around that person helping to lift them up otherwise you know you're going to be on hiding to nothing to, to a team that does have a, a solid backing so I think that's that's for me that's important also just in you know, in, in protecting from, from unreasonable risk of one person because anyone can go through a bad patch and then start taking excessive risk. And, you know, when you have a solid team around you, that, that support is crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I know you, you, can't, you can't tell me your secrets or your methodology and uh, or your, your models, um, but can you take me through your, your at least your rules and, and like, there are certain rules that you never break or when a portfolio, new portfolio manager comes in, Make sure that that's the rule that they never break. It all depends on, on what the client wants. So, for instance, Gary's fund. One of the imp- it's not actually an explicit rule, but it's the implicit rule of the fund. The way the methodology works, that he can't really go out of the blue chip companies globally. So, the way it works is that he's, he's the fund is forced to choose blue chip companies. 
Okay, and that is appropriate because that is where people put their real money. So if someone can put like 10 million into that there and have that be half their total net asset worth, be comfortable that they're investing in companies that are basically some of the biggest companies in the world and across, you know, and you can't have like, you know, more than a certain percentage in each individual company, yeah. which also matters in case there's a startup among those companies as well. No, sure. Yeah, like I get very nervous. So, so it's one of our stocks in our portfolio at the moment is NVIDIA. And I mean, we've backed NVIDIA right from the beginning. It kind of was selected by the methodology very early on. And I mean, we have massively on NVIDIA. The problem is I've already trimmed it like three times. <laughs> and it's now looking at it and it's a gain eight percent of the portfolio and I'm like this is too high <laughs> like, and I mean I typically look you know it depends uh, to, to answer your question uh, around the, you know, maybe some, some simple rules for guys to, to think um you know, for us, like a typical, I mean, there's all sorts of kind of like maths that will back this up as well. But, you know, even with three stocks, in diff- you know, and you've got to look at the correlation of the different stocks. It's not just about having numbers don't mean diversification. You know, having three banks is not diversified. <laughs> you know, having five, five gold miners is not diversified. Having some process. Having some process is not diversified. You know what I mean? It's not just about numbers. It's But, but if, if you have three uncorrelated um, stocks, that, that gives you probably 65% of of the benefit of a diversified portfolio. Once you get to about 20 to 30 stocks, like you, as long as you know, you're looking at uncorrelated sectors and things that aren't going to, you know, nice little roses to trade together, you're, you're going to be fine and you're going to get almost maximum benefit from diversification. So, um, I can say so. We normally look at that's kind of the the, the limit, but we, we're also limited by the deposit size of clients because of minimum trade sizes and all that. There's nothing wrong with going to a 30, 40, 50 stock portfolio. I mean, we take in from from retail clients. Like, I mean, I'll never forget because often we just pay. You know, when we bring a client in, we'll just pay for their portfolio transfer from a different broker, so it doesn't cost them anything to move across. But you basically are charged per line, and, and normally, oh, we'll pay for your portfolio transfer. Bring your money to rentals. And I remember one guy was like, I think he had 140 stocks in his Portfolio. <laughs> I was like, uh, we can't pay for this. <laughs> I know I made you a promise, but I didn't realize you had so much. But still, there's nothing wrong with, with going that. But I mean, typically, like a kind of rule of thumb on a 20 to 30 stock portfolio would be, you know, like at 8% exposure in a single company, that's that's getting a little bit heavy. Um, we would probably say, like, you know, if we were limiting portfolio managers, 10% is, is a reasonable amount. Uh, it depends on the bit, but as I said, it really depends on the mandate from the client as well. Because, like, if a client is saying, I want you guys to take high risk, I want this to be a speculative portfolio, um, we wouldn't stick in blue chips. But it's, it's that specific mandate that we have on those funds because most of those the, those clients are looking to do large volumes of money and it's looking to build a nest egg uh, for them overseas. This is not money that is speculative money. For that, we would rather put them with a private client broker, and then we would move the rules out to say 20% in a single stock, or you know, we'd have like specific liquidity requirements on the stock depending on the size of the portfolio. If it's a very small client, they can go into pretty illiquid stocks because they're not going to move the thing. If it's a if it's a hundred million rand portfolio or, or trust or whatever it is, <laughs> then then it's a totally different matter because if you're going to buy 30% of the company, like, that's going to be a problem for us to sell. You know, so so there's there's all sorts of things that you've got to take into account with this. So there's no there's no kind of like one. Yeah, I'm trying to come come up with some like simple one rule fits all. There's just so much that goes into it. One rule I think that that matters is that you have to understand from not from the trading point of view, but from your clients, from your like if you're a retail investor, is that never risk the money that you can't afford to lose. Okay, if you have money that needs to be in that you know bread and butter basket. Make sure you're dealing with it like it's bread and butter money. That it's money that you don't want to be losing. That isn't more blue chips. Mm-hmm. That isn't like that kind of portfolio. 
uh, don't put your that money into Bitcoin. <laughs> right? And, and that's the thing. It's, it's like I would say buying a car. What's the best car? Who knows? Are you in the racetrack? Are you taking your kids to school? Are you going on the Bundus? It, it depends, right? If you're going to school, probably, the, okay, then choose the best car, which is probably going to be a Toyota Corolla. If you go to the Bundus, then choose your Hilux, you know what I mean? But have the car that suits that need. But understand what the need is first, because there's no such thing as the perfect investment strategy, perfect investment portfolio. It's what your need is. Uh, the one rule that I would think that the client or the, any person that's managing money for us on, on behalf of our clients or something is, it's going to be is understand what the client's needs are and never basically violate that need. Basically make sure that the client understands that this is their need and, and never gets, you know, overexposed to something and never gets into a point in which they are, like I said, risking their bread and butter money. No, okay. Uh, you, you guys obviously uh, manage quite a bit of money. Um, numbers I wish I pushed. <laughs> um, how, how do you deal with um, um, you know, placing size in the market because you know often you can more start here. Uh, do you guys go all in? Yeah. Are you asking this question because you heard my phone call before? <laughs> <laughs> As you walked no, no, no. in. Um, um, I'm always right. fascinated. So, 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 so yeah, like, like I said, like it, it comes down to, to to making sure that you're putting, like I said, you're putting the right thing in the right place as well. So, you know, typically the reason, one of the reasons that you're also looking at much more blue chip, we're not going to move Apple. This <laughs> is not going to happen, you know. So, so you're also looking at vehicles that can absorb the investment size that you want as well. Um, there's plenty of ways that you, you can deploy that. I mean, there's market makers on, on certain instruments. You, you, you know, you can do institutional orders with people if you need it. Um, you can go and get lines of script. You know, we phone around for them when we need them. Um, so it's it's possible to do that if, if you're in a, something very illiquid and you need to and you need to get out. But the, the main thing is also don't really build positions in places that you can't get out, like like that's what I said. Like it's one of the, it's one of the fundamental criteria before making investment is to understand the exit strategy, understand the liquidity on, on the stock that you're exiting. And I mean that that was a hard learned lesson year, many many years ago when I was the executing broker for a fund manager. So I I was the junior on the desk and he was the PM sending me stock and. He, I won't tell you what stock it was, but he had he had a big portfolio, and he had no, he was like just a three percent weighting. It took me about <laughs> two months to get him his three percent weighting, and then he phoned me. He's like, "Sell all of it." I was like, "What are you talking about? Sell all of it? I can't sell all of it. Like, it's not possible." So, so I mean, I think we we're very cognizant of, of of where the exit is. I mean, even even with the structures, which are typically liquid products. Um, you know, we make sure that there's a there's a market maker on that. We make sure that like you know, either we're comfortable enough to, 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 to be the market maker and buy the structure off the client if we're uncomfortable, mm -hmm. if the client needs to exit early for whatever reason, or we'll have an investor or someone sitting behind us that will go and say, Okay, we'll make a double for you at one point two five percent, but you've got liquidity up until this and, and you know, it's it's putting those checks and balances in place before you enter a trade. You know, it's it's very you know, <laughs> you only ever need to get stuck like that once and you'll never do it again. Like, when you suddenly go, oh, I've got a lot of this, I will get rid of it. The market's yeah. just evaporating. Yeah, for a retail trader, a retail investor, you should never have to worry about liquidity. Okay. Yeah. But it happens It happens before, you know, I mean, I remember doing it on Lewis Group as well, yeah. like years ago, and, and we had a client that was just sending instructions 
a ridiculous size. And I was just like, God. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that, that's where it came down to us to kind of like highlight the risks to this guy and say, listen, you're building a position in a company that I'm not going to be able to get you out of in, in any sort of hurry. So just be aware of that. And then quite often, you, you know, you'll be surprised at how some people have a lot of money and don't understand how financial <laughs> markets work. And then it, it comes down to you to actually be the person that says, you know, I'd love to put this trade through because, you know, we want we want trade flow, but <laughs> we, we literally, like, there's, there's risk parameters in place that I'm uncomfortable that I'm not going to be able to get you out of the stock in, in a rush. Yeah, look, I mean, I would say, unless you're a professional, if there's even a small chance that you can move the market yourself, don't trade that instrument, trade something else. Mm. You're, not, you're not in a situation where... Uh, you are competent enough and you have the, the, the connections enough to basically, and probably the funds enough to actually ride out of a really bad position. So if you're in a position that, that is, like I said, like you said, there's liquidity issues, as a rule of thumb, basically, don't do it. <laughs> don't buy it. So that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and why, why do you guys think, uh, why do you think that is, like, um, especially with retail traders, that we put more emphasis on the entry and just don't forget about the, the, because, you, you know, I noticed, that, uh, noticed this a lot, because, um, you know, I trade, I trade in public and, mm-hmm. and I, I never have um, targets on, uh, on, on stocks. My exits are always my stock loss. And the question I always get is, where do I exit? Why do you think people are always concerned uh, about where to buy and have no idea where to exit? Both on the loss or... I was into you traders. Like, I mean, there's, there's questions you ask when you do a trade, right? There's three big, big questions you ask. And basically, what to buy and how much to buy is like the simplest one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the most exciting one. It's the most interesting one. It's like, you know, you ask her, which is the prettiest girl? But who's gonna make the best wife? <laughs> you know I mean, yeah. exactly. So you, you want the first question is always that. But the second question is, what do I do when I'm wrong, and what do I do if I'm right? You know what I mean? So basically, I make a decision. But every decision has to be followed. What do I do if I'm wrong, and what do I do if I'm right? Mm-hmm. And you just set those up before you basically execute the trade. If you don't know what to do if you're wrong, or you don't know when you're gonna be right. Don't do the trade. No. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's weird how, it, like, I mean, you know, trade, trading, and I mean, that's why, like, you know, you look at trading. Trading principles, like, will apply so much through all your whole investment journey. Uh, if you start out on, on, the, on a trading desk, it, those simple rules apply all the way through. So just to give you an example, like, 100% agree with, you know, like, what happens if you're, like, even if you're trading on a technical system and it's like, if it breaks that level, am I going to get out? Why am I getting out? Because where do I think it's going to catch next? You, you know, like, should I be getting out? Out there because it's going to catch a, a two. Like, is my stop loss in the wrong place? Should I be shifting my stop loss somewhere else? You know, like where to get out on the take profit? Sure. Like, am I going to let it run? Am I going to you do a trading stock trade? Like you say, you you said your exit strategy is to exit on a stop loss. Like, I'm assuming that's so you're going to raise the stop loss, yeah, raise yeah. the stop loss, and you're going to let the thing trail all the way out. That's still an exit strategy. You know, you don't need a target, but you you have a, a way of getting out. I'm just thinking about it. We were looking at for, for clients uh, recently as, as part of the thing. So, it, totally different. Not a listed investment. Not really a trade. But it was um, it was basically a, an Australian building, so they wanted about yeah I think it was about sixty million from client funds to to, to go to the office block outside um, Brisbane, um, where there was a government tenant for seven years. You were going to get like a seven percent Aussie dollar coupon on it, and the whole structure looked amazing. I mean everything all from from getting the clients in to the structure that we were putting it in to the whole prospect looked amazing. The thing that caught us in the end was how do we 
exit? How do we exit this building at the end? And it was like, no, the government leases are in for seven years. And, this, and we're like, and what happens after seven years? Who are we selling the building to? Where, where does the building go? No, and then it got very gray with the guys. <laughs> and I was just like, so we could be just lumbered with this building. And what happens if we can't get it? Oh, but we'll always get another tenant. And I was just like, Nah, I don't like it. I want to know exactly how I'm, I'm getting the money back to return it after we've generated the profit on, 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 the, on the thing. Like, it's, it's incredibly important that it works for trading, but it works for any... One of the biggest concentration risks that you're going to have is buying a house. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's huge concentration risk. Your personal, your primary residence that you go and buy. Like, you know, when you're buying it, think about how you're going to sell it one day because that will help you put in place the right kind of like, am I overpaying for this? Hey, no one else wants to pay 10 bob. Why am I paying 10 bob? <laughs> a million or 500,000, whatever whatever the case is. Um, so yeah, I always think, like, I mean, that's incredibly important. Just having a, a proper exit strategy is, is crucial. Yeah. I mean, another thing, when I used to trade, I used to tell clients, basically, what you need to do is you need to have feedback. Any kind of transaction, anything, any kind of activity you do, feedback is the most important thing to make you better at things, you know what I mean? And uh, it's like basic, imagine if you like um, if you're blind and you try to play golf and you don't know where the ball went, how could you get better? <laughs> you know, you have to have an idea whether or not you're getting close or not. And so what you need to do as a trader is you need to have a journal. You keep track of every single trade, what decisions were, what your stop loss before the trade happened, and what the result of that trade is. And then over time, you know, over five years, over one year, whatever the period may be, you'll figure out what your patterns are, what your weaknesses are, what your your issues are. And it's, it's the problem that people have is that they they kind of want to close their eyes when things go wrong. You know what I mean? But when you write it down, it changes. You can't ignore it. So you, you basically, it's not paper trading, it's basically keeping track of your real trades, yeah. but with a record that you need to go and look at all the time. No, and that's it. And I, mean, I remember doing that because I mean, like I said, you know, not as much as I used to, but we used to do an incredible amount of intraday trading, and we'd be tracking our PL every day to go, am I up? How much am I up? How much am I down? And I used to do that as well. And every day you'd write it down, and you'd write down what decision you made and why it went wrong, or what decision you made, and why, so that you can start to build up uh, like an idea of in what situation do you react wrong, in what situation do you react right, and you get to know yourself through through your trading, so that you know where your weaknesses are, so that when it happens, you can go. Oh, this is, I rem- you know, when you write it down, you remember it, and then and then you can go. Oh, I know every time I do this, this is where it goes wrong. So let's stop doing that next time. Find it's it's a coward or a maniac. Yeah, in, maybe, in, maybe, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't, you don't, you don't take enough exposure when when you when when you have a high conviction trade. Maybe you take too much exposure when you have a medium. Whatever, <laughs> whatever the case is, like there's many ways that you get to know yourself as you trade. Yeah, okay, like see, which uh, trading is. Most expensive way to learn who you are. I mean, knowing who you are is crucial to know. Yeah. You, you've yeah. got to be quite. I mean, you tra- you're obviously a trader as well. So I mean, you, you know, you've got to be ruthless. <laughs> you've got to t- do some deep soul searching to be successful at this game. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And like, um, you know, it wasn't until um, you know I truly looked into myself more than just the the market and to your point, journaling. I journal pretty much everything. Uh, partly because you know. I I do things in public and yeah. my journal is pretty much YouTube. I can just go back and watch myself and then watch old mm. videos and, and kind of, you know when you do some soul searching or mental um, like mental work um, as you said man, it's it's quite an expensive way to find out <laughs> <laughs> no but at least for for, for um, uh, retail traders at least you know in, in, in recent times it's, it, it's not as expensive as it used to be 
Uh, and what are some of the advice that you had that you, you got uh, when you first started out? Now, with the benefit of you know, you're older and wiser, and with, you, with hindsight, we're actually really the bad advice. And what were the habits that you built as a result of that um, uh, of that advice? And how did you unlearn those things? Well, I mean, the one thing I always, it's not from training sets, but they, 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 I used to be in engineering, they used to say, measure twice, cut once. You know, so before you do something, make sure you do the right thing. Uh, the, better, the best, second best trade is always to do nothing. You know what I mean? So if, if you basically have an idea, oh, this is going to be good, and there's some issue around it, just be careful about yeah. it. Yeah. That's uh, my PA account, that's definitely a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's like, I love it. that is something I've had to learn. It's like sometimes no trade is the best trade. <laughs> because yeah. you're looking at it and you're like, ah, I've just you come off like four or five great trades, and you think, like, I can't, I can't miss, and then you can't know that this trade is not going to work out. But hey, you're, you're winning anyway. Put it on, and it's to stop and go. Like, wait a minute, let's just <laughs> apply the apply the logic and apply the methodologies. Okay. Yeah. Um, so to, to to close off, um, any of your favorite books um, and the lessons that you picked up from those books? Okay, the, the one I put it, it's, it's a little philosophical. It's a guy called Nicholas Taleb. He's the guy that invented the concept of the black swan. He has a set of books called Inserto, which is about risk. It's a different way of thinking about risk. It's not mathematical at all. There's none of the equations. It's just about a way of thinking about how to do to understand risk, not just in terms of like trading, but in life in general. And I think it's a reasonably good way to to approach the subject from a person that most risk models that you use, that's academic, is going to involve mathematics, not just the simple stuff, the plus or minuses, there's going to be weird symbols there that you don't understand. And that is something I think sometimes, not just the retail trader, but the advanced trader is lost. Rather go for something where it's just, you know, rule of thumbs, heuristics, and it's such as a great way to think about that. And what about you, Gary? Okay. A little more. Yeah, no, 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 but I, I, no, no, no. I, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach because I've got I've got an English and classical background. So I enjoy classical books, and listen, I'm sorry if if you take this book recommendation and then you you think you open you're just like Gary, I can't chew through this crap. <laughs> but I, I I read Atlas Shrugged this year, man. It is absolutely incredible from a not for, not only a trading book, but but um, to think about money in general and and to think about systems and economic systems. It's Ayn Rand. It used to be. Um, who's a Randian? Uh, Alan Greenspan <laughs> was, a, was a big fan, but I read it this year. It, it, it's surprisingly supply, surprising. I mean, it's it's a tome. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a, it's not a light reading, but it's um, it's got an amazing it's an amazing way of looking at economic systems that I really enjoyed. Like from a kind of a trading book, just like a, like a kind of a more fun. So I enjoy the Michael Lewis stuff as well. So like Flash Boys, that kind of stuff. I've always I've always liked. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I think I think, I think Atlas Shrugged from from Ayn Rand and another classical one that's just great, just to do with money in general. is Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a little bit of a different tack, but yeah. But I mean, Rand saw himself as a philosopher as well. So it's, a, it's a bit of a philosophy book. Yeah, no, he didn't do a novel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's yeah, it's tough, but it's it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. yeah. But don't become a totally selfish bastard. <laughs> you, you, will, you will become a bastard for about eight months after reading that. So you've got to take everything with a pinch of salt, but just uh, I think something that uh, certainly South Africans can be reminded of. Cool. Yeah. Now, gents, we want to park it here. Thank you very much for your time. Nice. We really, really appreciate it. Um, do you guys have any like last words that I haven't covered? 
Yeah, look, I mean, like I said, the most important thing is to have discipline. Um, that's the most important thing for anyone that wants to train the market is discipline. And discipline is supported by rules and feedback. And if you can do those two things, then you should be okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, guys, like, I mean, learn. I suppose just you know, keep, keep, keep on the knowledge journey as well. Like uh, financial markets are an incredible thing to be a part of. So these are, I'm assuming, the, the first steps that you guys are taking uh, as listeners of this podcast. And uh, it's, it only gets better and better. Cool, cool. Now, Jim, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. That's it for the show this week. Be sure not to miss another episode of the British Twitter podcast by subscribing on your favorite podcatcher. Um, do join Simon Brown, Simon Brown and myself tonight as you're listening Wednesday. Um, we do this every Wednesday at 5.30. Um, the link to that will be on the show notes below. Otherwise, gents, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening and check in next time on the British Twitter. Cheers. Cheers.